Hello and welcome to our panel discussion on mental health in 2020. We are Voices, a DIY platform that has been created to address a myriad of social issues from mental health to climate change through fundraising, workshops, talks, panels and events. This discussion was recorded in front of a live audience ahead of our first Mind Dance at Sheaf Street in Leeds back in January. It featured a selection of local experts, including representatives from Map Charity, Forward Leeds and the University of Leeds, as well as our two resident DJs for the night, Bruce and Katyusha. It was moderated by our wonderful friend Aidan O'Reilly. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Welcome. If this is your first time at a panel discussion, please don't worry because it's my first time too. Okay, It's a new experience for a lot of us. I know we've got some well-experienced panelists, which is nice. But um, if at any stage we don't come across as trained professionals, it's probably because we're not. But the point of tonight isn't to be perfect, okay? The point of tonight is that we've been able to create a safe space to have a constructive conversation. And thankfully, we have been joined by these lovely panelists to add value to the conversation. Um, they've taken time out of their day to be here and they didn't have to come, so please show them nothing but love. And without further ado, I think it'd be nice if the panelists want to introduce themselves um, tell us a bit about what you do and why you're happy to be here and have this chat tonight. I think the microphones work. I'm not sure. They haven't been tested. Okay. Is it working? Yes. Um, so my name's Amy. Um, I am a recent zoology graduate from the University of Leeds. Um, I'm originally from Grimsby, but I've considered Leeds my adoptive home since 2015. Uh, Grimsby is not the one um, and yeah I'm now the welfare officer on the student exec um, which is a weird thing where each year you elect six students um, to kind of like lead the union uh, my remit is all things welfare uh, so I do quite a lot around drug harm reduction mental health um, period poverty that kind of stuff uh, so yeah really interested to be here and have conversations kind of focused around Music, which is something I'm a little bit less familiar with, but um, the drug harm reduction aspect, a little bit more clued up on it, and young people. I am a young people, so yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, excited to be here. Thanks. I'm an old people. <laughs> uh, um, my name's Chris. I am here representing Map Charity. Uh, so if you've been to Cosmic Slop Nights, um, anybody been to Cosmic Slop? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. So we know a little bit about Cosmic Slot. Um, MAP Charity um, work with young people aged between 11 and 16 who are um, to, to engage them back into learning. Um, typically, these are really vulnerable young people who are having difficult life circumstances. I'm also a counselling psychotherapist. Um, I manage a service in a, in a music industry niche at university, and I'm in private practice here in Leeds. So um, my interest tonight is just to, to continue widening the debate and, and talking about mental health and, and you know making it a thing that we, we continue dialoguing about. Hi, my name's Larry. Um, I make music as Bruce, and I'm starting to feel incredibly uh, under-equipped because I'm a musician, and that's it. Uh, these guys, I don't know what they're talking about. Um, but yeah, I will hope to give my opinion from my personal experience. 
as being a musician in the industry for the last mm, about four or five years. Um, music production and touring and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah. Hi, uh, yeah, I'm Bill. I work for Forward Leeds, which is a drug and alcohol service in Leeds. Um, part of my remit within that service is working around things around early intervention prevention work, working with people uh, 18, 24 years old. Um, I manage the Family Plus team that was mentioned before as well. And we do a lot of work predominantly in the teams are working around alcohol and non-opiate substances. So even though probably two thirds of our clients are probably sort of on methadone, on heroin, the teams I work with are predominantly sort of uh, clients who are sort of alcohol, non-opiates, of, of which kind of cannabis, cocaine, the biggest sort of drugs that kind of come to us. But again, part of what we want to do within the service is sort of get out and, and get sort of conversations going, you know, with, with people that wouldn't come to drug services and sort of sort of just start raising awareness or discussions, really. So for me, it's really, really good to be at events like this because it really you know, gets out those discussions to audiences that wouldn't come to drug treatment services, really, because, you know, drug treatment services can be scary places, and we don't want necessarily people to come there, but we want to get the words out of what we do and kind of how drugs can affect people and that kind of thing, and, and open discussions going. So it's great to be down here for those reasons. Okay. Hi, I'm Katia, a DJ under Katusha, and I also uh, write for some music magazines. I'm really interested in the kind of social and cultural aspects of DJing and music and also the arts more generally. So as with Larry, I'll be coming from that and a personal perspective. <laughs> All right. And there are our lovely panelists. Please give them a warm welcome. <laughs> so I think before we divulge any further into the topic, mental health obviously is such a almost buzzword and an umbrella term that covers so much and i think it might be good for us to dis distinguish between the difference between mental health and mental illness chris maybe if you could um enlighten us on this so throwing in a deep end there oh. <laughs> he's um, the most veteran of yeah. them all so i thought i'd give him the hard ones first so um how do we differentiate um so we've all got mental health it, it, it exists on a continuum um you know life stuff gets in the way i, I worked in music for 20 years uh, in, initially directing pop promos and then into djing when acid house kicked off and all the wonderful things that arrived through acid house um and definitely my mental health was affected by some of the, the stuff that I was getting involved in. Um, but I wasn't mentally ill, I don't think, or it didn't tip into into mental illness. So mental illness is a is a, a thing that's diagnosed typically by a clinical psychologist or a, or a psychiatrist. Um, and and it, people can live with it. You know, it's, it's, if somebody is diagnosed with a mental illness, bipolar disorder kind of thing it, it, it can be lived with you know and it, it can be managed really really well so you know I, I imagine that when we you know when we're in an event like this there's, there's perhaps somebody in the room who's, who's living with it and, and managing it through medication okay that's great so Amy I know you would deal with a lot of young adults especially in university on a daily basis what are some of the most common mental health issues that you would find amongst people that come in looking for support? It's, it's really interesting. Um, 
the kind of most common like conditions, diagnosed conditions are anxiety and depression, um, which is kind of similar for lots of age demographics, I think. I think where the conversation's a bit interesting with young people um, is because of that that blurred line between the kind of well-being and mental health that you're talking about. So um, you've got a lot of students who would say that they've got like low mental well-being and that's kind of how how well they are at coping on kind of a day-to-day basis and whether they feel happy um, and fulfilled and that kind of thing. But then you also have students kind of moving in and out of actual kind of mental health difficulties or conditions um, where they're kind of ongoing and during clinical conditions. Um, And we tend to see that people kind of fall through the gap in between the middle. So if if they've not got um, a diagnosed condition, um, it might be that they you know, they do meet the threshold for it, but they've not sought help for um, a massive multitude of reasons. Um, they don't kind of fit the threshold for more serious services, um, so psychological interventions and that sort of thing. Um, but then they also find that they don't they don't get the support that they need elsewhere. Um, and if that's something to, like, you know, we have a lot of students who struggle with um, eating, for example, um, the the kind of threshold that you need for BMI to get into NHS uh, eating disorder services has gone down. So it's much harder to access those. But then you're kind of left floating because there's nothing else at the moment. Um, Obviously, lots of third sector and social care services are quite overstretched, underfunded, over capacity. Um, So you'll just find these kind of dead ends in provision. And that's where we get students kind of falling through the gaps. So... Um, there's, yeah, I'd say the main sort of issues are around anxiety and depression, and that I think is is very telling of the sort of the kind of mental climate that young people are in at the moment um, with stress. I mean, the numbers of students reporting levels of stress that interfere with their daily life is just through the roof, um, and that obviously lends itself to poor mental health in whatever kind of format that might manifest itself. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess kind of. Anxiety and depression are, are the big ones, but we see quite a lot of more complex needs arising and more um, like dual diagnoses and that kind of thing where we really need stepped up kind of care that just isn't necessarily there at the moment, um, which is a shame. <laughs> but um, yeah, so not a very cheerful answer. Yeah, no, but... <laughs> well, it, it sounds like there's definitely the lead of anxiety and depression, but almost blurred lines between uh, some more serious mental conditions, which we'll definitely come into later. Um, In terms of depression and anxiety, uh, I'd be interested to hear what people's thoughts are and what are are the main factors in young people's lives you think that contribute to their overall mental state? I don't know if someone wants to lead with this. Well, uh, not being a young person, I'm probably the wrong person to come to on that, but I mean, you know, I was kind of reflecting on this a bit before the debate and having sort of young young kids, you know, a 12-year-old daughter at high school, you know, and kind of just, just the things that they're exposed to that, were, that I wasn't exposed to at that age, you know, the, the kind of the social media that's around there, the just kind of the tablets and iPhones and mobile phones and, you know, just, just kind of the pressures that those things put on. And um, I know I probably shouldn't admit this, but this time last week I was watching Love Island with her or roughly this time last week. And, you, you know, you, you, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively sort of skinny bloke and you sat there watching all these sort of like 
really buffed up sort of blokes from my angle, you know, thinking like, you, you, you know, that would be, you know, if I was a sort of 19 year old watching that, you, you know, that, that sort of wouldn't be me, if you know what I mean. And she's there as a sort of 12 year old girl looking at all these sort of lovely sort of bikini, bodies in bikinis, you know. So there's a lot of kind of sort of pressure that sort of, you know, and when I look at what she follows on Instagram, she's following last year, the last season's contestants. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes out there with kind of all these sort of perfect people, perfect bodies. So, so when I see that, and I'm coming from a totally unprofessional sort of viewpoint on this one, but these are sort of pressures that, that weren't around sort of, you know, when I was a, a youngster, basically. Probably better for one of these two to answer it. They're sort of a... Youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it's funny, I think it's kind of hard to comment when there's such a generation gap, um, but sometimes on these sort of things, because your, your attitude is always like, oh, we had it harder. Oh no, you had it harder. But it, you know, you can't really tell, I think, especially when you look back, even, even if, you, if you were quite conscious of it at the time, looking back at it now, it's impossible to really be so sure of it because the way that I think media and advertising, um, I wouldn't focus entirely necessarily on technology, but I'll come to that in a sec. I think the way the media and advertising is completely shitting in our brains all the time, like all the time, everywhere you fucking look, it is, we can't escape it. And that, the way that that affects us, I think is inescapable. Um, and it is so derogatory towards our mental health. Um, however, the way that that's getting communicated through media and stuff and through phones, I think it's hard to blame the technology really because of what, that technology also does in making people feel incredibly um, enabled and they feel they're able to communicate. And that it tied in with an age of a lot of like self-conscious, um, uh, self-conscious freedom of being able to talk about your feelings, you know, just from personal experience, once again, coming from an unprofessional experience, uh, viewpoint rather, but um, you know, talking to my dad about stuff, and I'm sure everyone in this room, you know, trying to talk to your parents about some, some emotional issues, and it, it's there. There are you can see there are certain barriers that have been set up, and that has been the pressure of previous generations is locking it all in. So where we might have a constant feed of how we're supposed to be looking, how we're meant to be acting, these role models that we're never going to reach, we're also given the tools to talk about it, and I, I, I it blows my mind to think how. Sometimes when you're given a voice, it can be so debilitating because you're just like, oh, I'm feeling about this, but should I feel like, Ugh. you know, and it, it can get really get you in a, in a muddle. Um, not too sure where I've ended up with that point, but uh, <laughs> it's a little hot take for y'all. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to be quiet again for about 45 minutes, so if anyone wants to. <laughs> No, it's a good point nonetheless. <laughs> so yeah, we were on the topic of what we think are the biggest factors that contribute uh, to someone's mental state at the minute, and you've touched on some completely great points. Are there any others that you feel are worth mentioning that maybe, yes? Amy's yes? uh, um, got, got some the, thoughts for us. The existential fear that is embedded in every single one of my generation is just a, a new phenomenon that I think is is kind of responsible for a lot of the poor well-being that we see. So, like, you turn on the news and it's just, you know, <laughs> unthinkable things are happening across the globe. You've got political turmoil, you've got racial injustice, all of that good stuff um, is just constantly being drilled into your brain at all times. And it's hard to 
be able to balance that with the good stuff that's going on. Um, and that's kind of like a, a, a global thing, but then on like a, a local and personal level, young people are also dealing with financial difficulties. You know, it is way harder for us now to, you can't just leave uni and buy a house. Well, not that that was ever kind of an easy, easy peasy thing to do, but it's certainly not getting any easier. Um, so there's like increased financial pressure. You're told a degree is not enough anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, the people who don't have degrees, what does that say to them? Um, but you're constantly told you need to be doing more and more and more because there's less jobs and there's more people. Um, so it's just all this horrible existential mindfuck. Sorry for not allowed to swear. Um, but I think that, that actually, <laughs> you've already sworn, so it's fine. Um, yeah, I think that has a lot to say for how depressed a lot of young people are. Um, and I don't think it's all completely hopeless because I think we're also getting closer and closer to a generation of people who really want things to be radically different. Um, but right now, it's hard not to be sad <laughs> with the state of the world, which again, I'm sorry, that's really depressing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. It, it's really, really complex. You, you know, I think that the, the many varied reasons are, are really complex. So anecdotally, what, what I can say is, I can give you a couple of examples. So I have a really good mate who for, he's the same age as me, so we're in our mid fifties. And he has three years ago, he was sectioned for, he had a, a psychotic episode. He was sectioned for four days and then you know, put into hospital care for a little while. And he's experienced episodes of, of, of depression and borderline psychosis for a lot of years. In December, he, he got a diagnosis for AD, adult ADHD. And certainly, you know, my experience in the, in the niche university that, that I work in, we've got a very, very small student cohort and it's, it's in the live events industry. So all of our courses are live events based. So you could argue that they are creative creative courses um, our student population who make a self-disclosure via their UCAS form for a, a, a learning disability uh, or a diagnosis or a prior mental health um, experience is 29% I think at Leeds last time I looked which was not this year it was last year it was 8% so we, we've got a, a, a quite an unusual cohort, but, but I think there, there is a really, really widening awareness of neurodiversity. And, and neurodiversity doesn't exist as a, you know, I'm on the autistic spectrum or I'm Asperger's, although you can't be diagnosed with Asperger's anymore because they've stripped that out of the, as a diagnosis. Um, what will often sit alongside Asperger's, um, being on the milder end of the autistic spectrum, being ADD, being, you know, all the things that start with A, um, will be, will, will be um, anxiety, depression. And, and if, if, if you don't have a diagnosis, you, you, you're basically going to end up yo-yoing constantly. You know, you'll have good periods, but you will have really, really bad periods. So, you know, you know there's another thing, you know, why, you know, because we're becoming more and more aware of, of, of neurodiversity, which is, is a great thing. And yeah, you know, we, we, we're seeing that, you know, figures for depression and 
uh, and anxiety, you know, go through the roof. Um, I, I worked at Leeds, Leeds Uni for, for a number of years in the counselling service, and there was a there was a major major correlation in in the, the rise in student service users post introduction of fees. So you know, you do the you do the you do the math. I think that's almost one of the things that makes mental health such a mammoth topic to try and digest is that there is so many factors of as you have all mentioned, but uh, Amy mentioned yourself about um, financial struggles and where maybe a degree isn't enough. Um, for this point, I maybe want to go to Larry and Katia because you have made a bit of a living for yourselves in a way that maybe not many people have in a less conventional way of being DJs. And I'd like to maybe hear about what sort of uh, challenges you've faced in your career or, or anything that sort of challenged your well-being in the profession that you've done? Um, I mean, I guess it's important to say that I don't solely make my living from music. So to start with, that's that. But um, I, I was talking to a friend recently who works for Mind Charity. Um, and he's also very into music. I used to run parties with him. Um, and I was asking him about like some wider research about um, like the relationship between mental health and um, like music and the arts specifically. And he was, he sent me a few things and it was really interesting to see how um, in this one study from, I think it was Help Musicians uh, UK, which is an amazing charity. Um, and they basically conducted this study. It was like a wider recreation of a previous study in 2016, I think. And um, they, basically wanted to hear from musicians' perspectives about what they felt uh, working in the music industry was like. And the thing that made the study really singular was the fact that it wasn't, um, it wasn't saying like, what is the scientific concrete relationship between music and mental health, but more like, what are people's own perceptions of working in the music industry? And almost just across the board, it was a very sort of consistent result, which is that um, you know, everyone found that music was great. Like music is therapeutic. Music is like the positive aspect of mental health. But then when it came to working in the music industry, that was the thing that was really detrimental. And almost like consistently people just found it really, really difficult. Um, I think that's just like very interesting to ask about like, on the one hand, it's it can seem depressing because it's, it's, acknowledging that okay the music industry is this like massive beast and it's something that's bigger than the individual but on the other hand you know the relationship you have with music yourself and creating music is so personal and variable but the music industry is a structure it's something we can change something that we've got like ostensibly some control over it's like a logistical thing and if that's the problem then you know there's quite a lot of potential that's great thank you for sharing Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I think it's funny, really, looking at over... It's now got to a point, me doing music for a little while and making a living off it. I've been doing, doing it solely music for, like, about three, four years now. Um, and it's a dream come true. It's, it, it really is special. I, I, it doesn't feel... It feels like yesterday when I was looking into it and, and it's as, like, 
choosing unis and trying to work out whether this was even a possible thing and fighting once again the expectations of like a degree and going just like, no, mom, I will be a DJ. Uh, I was like, oh, have you seen this Tiesto guy? He's pretty good. I'm like, fuck, he's not in the world like. Uh, you know, so, you know, so it's, it, the battles are real and you, you don't forget that. And it's something you're incredibly grateful for. Things that do change when you're working in this kind of industry is your attitude towards your sense of self and your, the importance you put on certain things. I've never been, I'm, I don't know whether it's to my benefit or not, but I've never been too focused on cash. Like, I think it's important for me to, um, you know, music for me and integrity comes before. And I think, but that's not the right way of doing it. It's just my way of doing it. And, but as Katty pointed out, the structures that exist for me to be able to do that, for me to be able to look into next year and have a career is that I have to play by certain rules. I have to do certain gigs. I have to not do certain gigs, but I have to be gigging a lot. And last year I was gigging like every, pretty much every weekend for quite a while. And these, and it's not necessarily the gigs itself that's, that's taxing. It's the fact that you get a big emotional lift when you're playing and you feel incredibly fulfilled and incredibly grateful. And you know, and you try and deliver all the smiles to the right places. And you're like, yes, big up, see you later. And then you get on a plane and then you go home and then you crash. And then, and it's like, and then I'm quite, I've come to realize over this last year, you realize you have to set up boundaries for yourself. You realize there's, I didn't realize my mental health was such thing or my, I am, um, mental health was something I had to work so hard to upkeep. I didn't realize I was such a sensitive dude, but like I have to cry like once a week, like just to stay balanced, just, just to keep it real. Like is otherwise I'm, I'm, I'm neighboring up like, I'm neighboring up like, Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm building. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, you have to you have to pay me to get some of that. Um, but no, I. Um, it's is it's just something you learn to live with and you learn to deal with because you know you can you can get on top. You can all get on top of you and you're sitting in the bath and you're thinking, why am I doing this? And you go, well, because you don't want to do anything else. Oh yeah, that's right. Cool. You know, and you make peace with it and you get on with it and you crack on. And I'm in a very privileged position to be able to say that. Um, I generally, you know, whilst I there's there's things you have to cut, get over. Um, structurally things work for me you just have to um, find the strength and know when to talk to people know when to give yourself a bit of time for your, you know a bit of time for yourself um, and you make it work yeah, it's nice to hear that because I know there's some people that go to university and get a degree and think why am I putting myself through all this stress but to know that even for someone like you that's doing something that you love that there's still always stress associated with the job and there's always going to be stress in them sort of situations I mean, I don't know what sort of advice would you usually give out to people that are in that position thinking like I'm putting myself through hell to get this degree and there's maybe not nothing on the other side. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, I would usually say, oh, do you want a cup of tea and like I'll say look. no comment if you want. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm always just, uh, I think there's quite a lot of focus at the minute on like individual resilience. Um, and I think that there's a little bit too much onus put on individual resilience, kind of like expecting people to be tougher than they actually are. And that's really interesting <laughs> when you kind of judge that against the like snowflake narrative as well. Um, there's a lot of yeah young people who are really struggling who are labeled snowflakes because they want to speak out about what they're facing or anything like that, which is just obviously not a good thing. Um, so I feel like I would always want to, you know, um, give people kind of tips on how to manage their own well-being. So using kind of, there's these nice like NHS five ways to well-being thing. 
um, which I can't actually remember all the five of them. It's like give, connect, be active, take notice, and something else. <laughs> Anyone got any idea? Shoot Piers Morgan. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, no. We should we should definitely add that one. Um, There's no way affiliated with hate towards Piers Morgan, just in case. This is <laughs> <laughs> Available for <in> private practice. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Um, yeah, I highly endorse that one as the fifth. I don't think it is, unfortunately, but... Um, but... <laughs> yeah. It's Morgan. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, so these, like, five ways are quite a nice way to conceptualise, like, what self-care actually looks like in the concept of mental health as well, because, you know, things like take notice, that's actually just mindfulness and meditation in a nutshell and it tries to make it a little bit more kind of digestible to your average millennial um but then also just kind of assessing more seriously what you need like is is what you're dealing with beyond your own kind of capabilities to deal with and if so that is absolutely fine um i think people still try to deal with things on their own and even though we're seeing a massive kind of reduction in the stigma around mental health um, we still see people too proud or too scared to come forward when they're facing those difficulties themselves. It's a lot easier to obviously sit there the other side of it and go, oh, just ask for help. Um, but people need that encouragement and they need you to kind of ask twice and they need you to actively listen to them. Um, but yeah, just kind of encouraging people to actually think about what they need. Do they, do they need to be kind of, do they need to go and speak to a GP? Do they need, do they, should they kind of think about medication or other forms of, of therapy um, and it's a shame as well that in this kind of climate one of the first things that a GP will offer you is, is medication rather than um, other kind of forms of talking therapy and that kind of thing um, and the, they work best obviously in combination um, but it's yeah it's actually quite difficult to, to deal with that because when you're telling people oh you know assess what you need um go and go and get help if you need it but then i know that i'm signposting them to someone who probably can't actually help them we're seeing reports from gps saying that they feel completely unable to deal with um the amount of mental health difficulties coming through the doors a third of our appointments at least due to medical practice are about mental health um and the gps are just completely overwhelmed and they don't have the resource to keep offering um, the CBT. I know that I, I managed to get onto a CBT course because they'd only just introduced it and hadn't advertised it to anybody. So um, managed to slip on there, but no one else is, is that lucky. And now there's a really hugely long waiting list. So it's kind of hard to deal with when, when people come to you and ask for advice because you don't want to signpost them somewhere that's just going to be a dead end for them. Um, but I would never, I always do want to encourage people to seek help because there's so much pressure to kind of deal with it all yourself um, and that is just not <laughs> obviously not the right way to go about it I don't know yeah, that sounds like great advice for having to give it out when you can but obviously resources are under strain and that is something that we're going to come to in a little bit but one other point I wanted to talk on Bill is you're talking about your own experience with um, social media and how you feel like that was a big influence on your daughter Obviously, social media is a very well-discussed topic in the field of mental health, so I don't want to spend too long on it, but there's an interesting dynamic in the music industry with social media because a lot of these sort of nights and a lot of people who work in the music industry couldn't really survive without it, so I think it's maybe worth dabbling into a bit. Um, one of the main 
um, criticisms of social media is that it's a um, it's almost giving people metrics to compare each other by. Um, what sort of effect do you think that has on someone's mental health? Oh, I mean, um, it's, it's a very good question. That I mean, it's. it's... <laughs> It's really hard to gauge, and I suppose I'm kind of not in a position really to say what effect social media has on people's, um, you know, and I, th I think it can vary quite a lot, and, and some people can be very much more, uh, I suppose, vulnerable to these things than others, and I think if you're looking at kind of mental health in general, you know, different people have different levels of vulnerability, and I think with, with things like social media, you know, people might measure themselves against the people they see on social media, other people might kind of I suppose not be as affected by that, and I think a lot of it comes to things as you're growing up, or, or, or elements of it, kind of, kind of thing like the self-esteem and your you kind of your, your self-belief, your self-confidence, and things around that. And we are in society all very, very much influenced by our peers, you know. And I think um, particularly when we, you know, we look at people when kind of moving to, into sort of universities and things like that, you're often on your own in cities where you don't know people, and you look at Leeds, a city of what 750,000 people. You know, it's very easy to get lost and very easy to feel isolated in cities like Leeds. And I think, you know, that's where you can be more vulnerable, especially. And and that's perhaps where you know the influences around you can can affect you more. So I think I think things like that can sort of have impacts on people's mental health. You know, how how they're feeling, where they are at that point in their lives. You know, their their social situations, the support they've got around them, that kind of you know, you know the, the sense of community they might have around them. And I think that's kind of changed a lot over the years where. You know, we're a lot more of a mobile society now. You know, you know, you might find communities in universities. You might find communities in a nightclub. You, 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 you know, it's where you find that sense of community and what support you can get from that. So, yeah, I think I went off topic a bit there. No, you're, you're spot on. That's a great answer. Um, I'm just going to add something. Yeah, I, I think that comparison point is really important, and especially with young people. And I suppose specifically with moving to uni. Um, you get that whole kind of narrative around like, this is going to be the best three years of your mm. life. And then you get there and you're stressed and you don't like your housemates and your course isn't what you thought it was going to be and your halls are like really crap and far away um, and everything seems to be going wrong and you just feel like you're on your own. Um, and all you've got then is your friends cherry-picked uh, pictures on social media where they've already made about 50 new best friends in the first day and they're like mm. loving life. Um, and that can be really, really isolating, I think. That was something that I felt myself when I started um, but it, then I didn't realise until much later on that everybody else felt literally exactly the same um, I ended up kind of mentoring first years when I was in my second year I was like I wish I'd had that because it was just a space where everyone could be like are you really overwhelmed and shit scared too and everyone was like yeah <laughs> um, and that was kind of what they needed to then just start talking about all the issues that they were facing and then you could kind of tease out like solutions to things so they didn't know that you could swap halls or whatever um, but yeah, that kind of comparison I think is really unhealthy and I'm, I don't know what the answer is to it, but you are only seeing kind of those cherry picked moments on your friends' timelines and whatever. Um, and I think it's true for leaving uni or not going to uni. You're always comparing yourself with where people are at. And at this age, I've got friends back home who have got like three kids. I've also got friends who are like only just starting uni, um, friends who are working full time and friends who are unemployed. Um, and they're all comparing themselves against each other, uh, whereas they don't see the factors behind that. They don't see that they've, you know, some of them might have been struggling with mental health for a few years, and that's why they're not um, this kind of high-powered professional like their friend seems to be. Um, so it is really interesting, but again, I feel like conversation around social media often focuses on those negatives, but 
it's an incredibly positive thing for well i guess introverts who have struggle like have struggle who struggle to make connections like face to face or people who struggle to go and ask somebody else for information or for help um it's also such a good tool for staying connected with friends who have gone to different places and um you know when people go on years abroad and that kind of thing um you can still stay in touch and you can still kind of you can forge a sense of community so i think it's always important to have that kind of balance when you're talking about young people and social media because it's very easy to kind of demonize it and you often get then into like technophobe territory where everyone's like oh young people are depressed because they're staring at screens all day every day um, which is just a bit patronizing and not true um so yeah it's, it's a really interesting one but i think that comparison thing can be especially damaging especially like for first year university students but for anyone i think i think when you're uh trying to deduce whether social media is a good thing or a bad thing you could spend all day weighing up either side of the scale and you mentioned that like you're not quite sure what the answer is and what we're seeing now with social media companies is that they don't necessarily know what the answer is and this is why we see instagram trialing things like having no likes rather than showing numbers and i'd just like to see out of interest who would prefer instagram if it didn't show likes all right, got a mixed mixed audience there. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, again, there's definitely reasons for and there's definitely reasons against it, but this is just things that they are trying to implement to see is this gonna have a more positive effect on our audience and I, we can't blame them for trying, you know what I mean? It's it's an important thing that needs to happen. Um, I think well, then, yeah, exactly. As, as soon as their profits drop, as soon as their profits drops, they'll be putting boost boosting everyone's likes, but. <laughs> Behind that, oh yeah. <laughs> Talking to the internet there in my head. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, let, let's not forget what you know what these things are about. They are they are designed to sell us shit. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, you know, we've I'm sure we've all had that experience of of chatting about something and then you know. An hour later, an advert pops up, you know, for, uh, you know, dog poop bags. <laughs> we got a dog a while ago, so we've been talking a lot about dogs. <laughs> you know, is this, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't know, just a, just a thought. I completely agree. I'm sure everyone in the room has had that experience, and it is grim. But it's totally grim. It's totally grim. I mean, I don't even want dog poo bags, and I'm getting adverts for them, so I don't know what's going on. But I bought a hundred boxes. I don't even know why I bought them. It just seemed like a really good idea. I think, though, I mean, well, speaking from experience, um, whilst I've had discussions with people recently about it, whether it, whether it's the case or not, I think if you do want to build a brand or you've got a you know a creative profile you want to be building up social media is somewhat essential you can do it without you can be rock and roll and you can be like nah i don't need that like, i'm just i'm just going to be really really good and for, for some lucky buggers it works um but for most people it doesn't and i think it's it's once again you mentioned about the, the idea of being technophobe like technophobic and like hating on it and i think that's really important i think it's important that they you know that we are vocal about it but it, it has to come to a point because we can't, you know, we, we're going to have to, we've got to use it. We've got to use it. So we've got to make do. We've got to make do. We've got to find find the space 
to be able to if you're not if you don't find yourself being present or you don't find yourself don't you find it help you think these devices are helping you have the right frame of mind then you need to make sure to do you know and you realize you have to have it you have to find yourself the space elsewhere um it's ironic how um i think you mentioned about about the meditation like the kind of, kind of like mindfulness thing it's easy to digest i'm a full sucker for that i i, I feel like i've I know Andy from Headspace's recital back to front. <laughs> that guy is such G, and and he and, and that kind of like ease into like um, you know to, to mindfulness and to taking a little breather has been massively beneficial. And it's something I'd recommend to anyone who's ever got found a little bit stressful. Um, and it's it, it ironically is connected to the same thing you're trying to escape because it's through an app, um, but. If you make peace with these sort of things, and you know it's actually not that bad to live by. But once again, this comes from placement privilege. I don't have any major mental health. You just—it's just through practice and through you know you find you find something that works. I think for now we'll save questions for the end if that's okay. But keep all. Please your don't point. forget it. Because we do want we do we do want to hear what you have to say. But I think for now we'll just try and get through as much of the conversation as we can, and then we'll open the discussion to people at the end if that's okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For the recording, it's all it's for all about um, following people that make you happy, and we all agree it's great. Yeah. Well, I guess one of my other questions I was maybe going to ask, or maybe wasn't going to ask, but I will ask now because you've made this point. Was <laughs> is that look at you're fucking uh, amazing thing? He's like, oh, we had a plan. <laughs> nah, I was going to drop this question, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, it's falling apart. What are we going to do? Uh, Sorry. The point Sorry. Was that, uh, obviously, we've got these social media companies who've created these apps for us, and then there are the users who are interacting. In terms of having a negative effect on our mental health, does the accountability lie with how the apps presented to us or how we are using it? That's, I think, one of the big questions when it comes to things around our mental health is who is it? Who is accountable? Is it the user or is it the platform in which we're being drawn into? I think, I think just just on that, it's interesting. Um, just talking to some of the psychologists we've had at work, and one of them's gone off to set up the um, gambling. There's a new gambling service in Leeds, and I, th I think sometimes going beyond the responsibilities. I think it's sometimes what these things trigger in the brain and release the chemicals like dopamine. And there's sort of evidence suggesting now that as you use these apps, you're getting sort of little releases of chemicals that make you feel good. So, so I think, yes, there's, there's a lot of responsibility in kind of how we use these things. But I, th I think these things do sort of go a little bit deeper. And, you know, they do become sort of addictive behaviours. And I suppose I come from this from sort of a, a addiction kind of background a little bit. But, you know, these behaviours can become a, a, addictive to a point. So, so, yeah, there is a lot of responsibility kind of how we sort of you know, use them ourselves, or even, you know, as a father, sort of educate your children to use them and kind of what boundaries you put in. But I think there is a lot also kind of about just how these things do hook you in and over time you just kind of buy into it a little bit, really, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. So I think now we've touched on the stresses of jobs before. We've touched on stresses that can come with social media, stresses that can come with university, other challenges that face people. And with all this stress building up, there must be some room for blowing off steam and, and for people doing things that they love. 
and Katya you touched on earlier about how how amazing it feels to to play music and to do these sort of gigs and I wonder if you could elaborate elaborate a bit on how that makes you feel and also the people that come to these nights to, to experience the music to experience the energy what do you think that does for them um, I mean I guess just carrying on the kind of uh, actually I don't know if we've mentioned this but the kind of implication of um, like drug taking within music and um, this kind of like late night environment of hedonism and all of that um, I feel like there's definitely been an arc, as there are with so many DJs, of starting a bit more hedonistically. And now I feel like DJing is the most satisfying when I'm actually more or less sober pretty much every time. Um, but then there's also been a lot of different experiences with um, people who I felt close to um, who have kind of run parallel with my experience of DJing. Um, so I think one of the ones that sticks out the most is when I was first learning to DJ, I was, uh, my partner at the time was an, a recovering addict. And um, in the it was, it was like pretty concurrent with um, me first starting to play gigs. So like a, a year of that. And um, he basically didn't really go out. I think maybe we went out once together. It wasn't very nice. It was like just a bit overwhelming for him. Um, and at some point he relapsed and kind of with the relapse we started going out for the first time together and it was really amazing because all of a sudden there was this bridge between this world that I've been getting more and more confident in and this world that we shared together um, but you know unsurprisingly his relapse also kind of um, synchronized with the demise of our relationship and everything kind of went a little bit pear-shaped um, and I just found that really interesting to think about um, how you know, in a way, music for me as a as an individual had been my release and it had been something that I really gravitated towards. But in the context of someone who had a uh, mental health, um, I mean, yeah, addiction as a, as a mental health um, like circumstance, it just kind of wasn't compatible. And I didn't have the tools at the time to know how to deal with it. I just, I don't think that if I, I could rewind time that anything would have gone differently. Um, but I feel like one of the most important questions is knowing how to kind of still manage to enjoy music and get all of the beneficial effects of it and therapy, the therapeutic effects that you can get from it, but also including people for whom that is not a straightforward answer and being able to involve them as well. Yeah, that's great, I think. And the people that come to see you play as well will appreciate the sort of energy that you put into it and what it can do for them. Um, I know, Chris, you run a lot of programs that kind of uses music in a different way to help people blow off steam or to help with their well-being. And, I mean, not specifically with MAP, no. Um, okay, that's my notes done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no how, how, not specifically. However, you know, look, you know, we're working with 11 to 16-year-olds who, who we're trying to re-engage in learning, you know, kids who, who've kind of fallen through the cracks for whatever reason. Typically, it's because they've got a, 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 tough, a tough family life. And... So I, I would say I, I think that there is is a massive, massive connection between creativity and well-being. Uh, certainly, 
you know, I mean, one of our young people, um, one of our ambassadors at, at the charity, um, when she came to us the previous year, she'd been uh, she'd been kicked out of seven pupil referral units. This was a young person who was throwing chairs through windows. And she came to us, and we, we have a very, very different model because it's not a squeezed curriculum. It, it, it's about creativity. It's about, you know, we use map, music, and art productions. You know, so we use music. We have a, we have key skills, English and math, embedded into into those creative programs. So, you know, if, you, if you're interested in, in programming and making music, what we're going to do is we're going to teach your maths through beat counting. So it's just this, it's this engagement. And I, and I think that when you engage a, a, a young person or when you engage anyone in, in creative thinking, I think, I think that there's a, there's, a, there's a direct correlation to well-being. You know, we, you know I, I love creativity. You, you know, it's, 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 it's the glue that binds everything. So my first degree was fine art. And and I studied with some really really guys and, and women who are really famous artists now, and I had one of them up to the charity about four or five years ago. A guy called Jake Chapman, who was who was one of my peers at that at, at uni, and he was coming up to help us. And he he said to me, "Do you not miss being being an artist?" I was like, well, now I'm, I'm being infinitely more creative now in working therapeutically because it's a it's a way to to go. But it's about working creatively, and so I, so yes, I think there is a, a a really strong and direct correlation between creativity and well being, and that's something that that we really really endeavour to pursue with with the young people that we work with, and we get really amazing results. I think um, the value of creativity is definitely invaluable. I think for a lot of people, even just experiencing or watching someone being creative or doing their thing can be empowering for a lot of people in a way for people to let loose. And one topic I want to touch on is that when we have young people, young adults, university students come into these nights out to enjoy music and, and to blow off some steam that we do have the, the overlapping topic of recreational drug use. And I know, Bill, this is something that you're a little bit more um, knowledge in and educated on. And I'd maybe like you to tell us a bit about what sort of effects this can be having on young people, even if it is just for fun and it's in good spirit. Um, I think kind of, well, Mike. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, drugs by the nature of what they are, being psychoactive substances, affect your brain. They affect how you think, and you know, I mean, it's interesting as well. Alcohol sometimes left out of that uh, equation and thought process, but al alcohol's perhaps one of the most damaging drugs there is, and I think you know, it's, it's one of the most well, it is the most socially acceptable one. You, you know, the, the brain as well still develops up to the age of you know twenty five as well. So, so a lot of people. You know, probably most people in this room. You, you know, your brain's not fully developed yet. You, you, you know, and um, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, that it, you know, cannabis use, you know, alcohol use at young ages does impact on your brain development. I mean, from from a mental health perspective as well, the, the drugs, you know, I suppose commonly used drugs in sort of um, club drug circles. You know, you know whether it's alcohol, it's a depressant drug stimulant drugs that they kind of stop your brain well they, they stimulate your kind of brain and the neurotransmitters your brain stops making them then you feel down so you so you you know you in a sense you're playing with your mental health to a degree now for a lot of people you, you know 
people can manage that up to a certain point. But it's when these behaviours become sort of, you know, quite cyclical or even it becomes sort of a habitual process that then it can start sort of becoming... Um, well, I, I suppose, you know, that, that's when you've got to be, start being more aware. So, so for some people, you know, going out, having a good night out, you know, taking a few drugs, you could be fine. But, you know, for other people, it becomes sort of quite habitual behaviours. And, you know, if your brain chemicals are up and down, up and down, up and down, that's when it can start to have sort of more, I suppose, long-term impacts, really. So, so I suppose, you, you know, I mean, you know, not forward leads myself, you, you know, we're never here to say sort of stop going out having fun. You know, I'd never say go out and take drugs because uh, professionally that's not what I'm allowed to do. But what, what, what I'm trying to get out there is, is, is that, that, that it's, it's for people to sort of understand the effects of substances. And I think, you, you know, go out and sort of make educated decisions. And also I think there's a lot about kind of being aware of kind of how things impact on your own mental health as well. You, you know, and I know, um, you know, you go out, you have a good night out and, and there, there is a lot of sort of sense of sort of community within within clubs and drugs can really kind of build on that. You, you know, people going out, you know, you know, things like ecstasy, you know, that whole kind of nature, how they're making people feel and, you know, people are your best mates and things like that. You often see people at weekends, you won't see them until the next week. You know, you often don't see people during the week or kind of like, like you know, when they are on the sort of the, the downers that come with these things. So, so things can get a little bit glorified in your own head or you think, you know, everyone's having a great time, but is it just me feeling a bit, you know, crappy Monday, Tuesday, stuff like that? So, so I think really th th there's just a sort of understanding about trying to kind of keep some balance with these things as well and making sure that, you, you know, I always kind of think, you know, whatever level anyone's at where, when they're coming to, to us, it's a, a lot of it, the starting point is around kind of that self-awareness and just, just being honest with yourself about how things affect you and what is good for you and what you can tolerate and what you can manage and, and you know, using that as a starting point, really, on kind of working out what impacts things are having on you, really. Yeah, a couple of things, there's always like, does this still work? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's working, it's working. Um, there's always like, Two things I'd say that I always want to add to conversation around young people and, and drug use with regards to mental health. So the first one is kind of self-medication. So with um, formal interventions, so hard to access, um, it is not a surprise. I think that lots of people are turning to drugs that they feel like they're going to self-manage their own mental health conditions or difficulties with. Um, and then the, the so I think it's really important to understand those motivations for drug use. Um, and then the second thing, what was the second thing? It was to do with your point. What was your last point <laughs> about? about? Something about your point there as well. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no yeah, sorry. But yeah, yeah, being informed and educated and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, there's a lot of barriers to young people being informed about drugs because we don't get proper drug education. It's just, just say no. Obviously, that has failed. Um, we did a very interesting survey at the University of Leeds last year. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a lot. And uh, we now know kind of, you know, the main problem drugs that our students are taking and all that kind of stuff. And that's all to inform a harm reduction approach as opposed to like a zero tolerance approach because the just say no thing has completely failed. And what that means is that students don't feel, or just young people don't know where to find information about what not to mix might not know that you know mixing alcohol and cocaine or, or something can literally kill you. Um, they don't know where to find that information, and they feel like if they come forward to talk to somebody about 
drug misuse, whether that's themselves or somebody else, it's that overwhelming fear of I'm going to get in trouble, I'm going to lose my career prospects, whatever. Um, that's a huge barrier to people coming forward to get help or to just seek information um, because, you know, they're going to, students are going to take drugs. What needs to be happening now is that more and more people are focused on making sure that less students die from drug overdoses or poor mixing or whatever um, because that whole kind of drugs are bad, end of, don't ask me anything else is <laughs> just contributing to people not being informed about what's safe for them um, and not knowing that there is help out there if they do want to kind of reach out for it so it's a very complicated topic but one that I mean at the university I've just passed a harm reduction policy now for the, the union which is decent um, we're looking at bringing in drug testing kits but obviously that's like a whole other conversation because their accuracy is really limited so if you're going to be looking at bringing in harm reduction tools you've got to kind of wrap that up in a broader educational campaign and it's really hard to do educational campaigns about drugs while you're at uni <laughs> and while the uh, yeah the head of residences will basically like wet himself if anyone says the word cannabis um so it's like yeah it's not it's not great it's not i'm really trying to get him on side but it's um it's taking quite a lot of my energy uh, he he actually He's on a one-man mission to uh, end drug dealing in Hyde Park. He gets his staff to hand him every single business card that he gets, and then he hands them over to the police. Like the police are going to be like, "Oh, oh, you know, Jay, you got <laughs> got to follow up this." It's like what ridiculous. Um, so I'm very amused by that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think unis especially are still really interesting places when you when you're talking about drug harm reduction because they're just like, no, no, zero tolerance, the law, etc. Which is of course, yeah, great. Um, but it doesn't address the fact that like lots of your students are taking drugs <laughs> unsafely. Um, so it's, yeah. Just on that point as well, I mean, we tried to do work with the nighttime economy in Leeds and I, th I think it's a, it's a common thing within sort of clubs and pubs just across, you, you know, I'll speak for Leeds, across the city where, you know, a lot of places are reluctant to admit drug taking happens in their premises and, and are reluctant to sort of gear, I suppose, I suppose, kind of messages around that, really, you know, and I suppose... But there's no leeway in the, in the law that allows them to. No, no the, if, they're, if they're licensed on the line, like, the rules are so tight for venues, like, they, they don't have an inch if it gets down. No, no, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. No, I think that's where, you know, we talk about kind of harm reduction messages, you know, and there's there a couple of deaths, or there's a death in prison nightclubs in Leeds, you know, a couple of years ago, and, and that really opened the door for them allowing a service like ours just to go in there and just try and present sorts of messages around sort of drugs. And, you know, we would have this kind of, chart that we lay out that just shows you the risk of mixing this drug with this drug and you'd spark some really good conversations with people just sort of being able to sort of do that you know and I think I think it's trying to open up some of those doors and you're quite right a lot of it comes down to licensing and things like that but um but you know when it when, when people end up sort of you, you know when it takes a death in a nightclub to sort of open the doors for a service to go in there and do that kind of work you know it just sort of shows th that these things are sort of barriers really to kind of really trying to get good messages across to the right people and again you know for us as a service you, you know it's one of the good reasons about coming to a place like this is it's really 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 hard to reach the audiences we want to reach because there's there's barriers in places you, you, you know which can be kind of legal barriers you know you know i mean we've been looking at things like doing stuff with um Leeds festival and they're, they're a lot more open to getting messages out there now but but it just takes such a sort of time and drip feeding and things like that and i'm going to shut up because i'm going to steer onto things that i'm not allowed to talk to if I'm not careful, so yeah. Well, that's fine, yeah, thank you very much for sharing. Um, one of the first points that you touched on was 
um, students self-medicating themselves. And I don't know if you've been peeking at my notes, but that was one of the things that I was good at. <laughs> no, I'm really joking. But uh, no, it's good. It's uh, I've, I read on a line from some reliable research that 20% of students who were taking drugs in university were doing so to self-medicate. And it almost opens the question is, are people aware of the support that is available for them? And I guess this can maybe go across um, all of your professions in a sense that do you think what you're doing and what you can offer people is is widely enough communicated and, and resonating with people that potentially need the help the most? Well, I mean, I, I think the kind of problem is that everyone is communicating what they're doing a lot. <laughs> and that means that you're just bombarded with messages about support here, there and everywhere. Um, and that's great that there is a lot out there. But A, a lot of it when you actually try and use it is like a charity that has no funding. Um, I could give you like a huge list of all the charities in Leeds currently that are like close to referrals or have like eight month waiting lists or whatever. Um, but then, so that's one issue. But then the other thing is just like when you are down, when you're, if you're in, a, if you're in kind of a, a, a pit of depression, you can't really sift through all of this information that you're getting. You're getting like millions of emails in your inbox every single day telling you about all the different ways that you can get support, um, yeah. and it just means that it then gets less accessible because you're like, well, there's so much out there, I don't know where to start, and I don't know what would be right for me, um, and we put a lot of pressure on the kind of individual to figure out what exactly is is right for them without having a person there to kind of guide you through it and talk you through it, um, which is where I think kind of peer support can come in quite a lot, helping people navigate what's actually out there and find them what's suitable for them because you're not in the best place to do that yourself when you need it the most, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I mean with, with barriers to service, I mean, I, th I think the biggest barriers to service is, the well, the biggest barriers are just resources, really. You, you know, in a service like ours, I mean, we, we have... 3,000 clients, probably at any one time, 2,000 of those are probably on methadone or kind of opiate users. You, you know, the the remainder probably sort of predominantly dependent drinkers. So so when, when we look at these people, we're, we're probably talking people sort of, the, the bulk of our clients are coming in to service or in services sort of 30s, 40s, you know, there's an aging, a heroin population. You, you know, but, but it's trying to get through to, to in a sense, the, the younger generations. And I, I think for us, you know, there's a lot really about trying to kind of get messages over to people kind of early on and also make services like ours be more accessible for people early on as well. And, you know, again, you, you know, when we're focusing on, let's say, work with 18 to 24 year olds, you know, the people that we generally get coming through are generally the people who are... I suppose more complex. You know, I'm thinking. You know, we've got people that work. At, we've got somebody who works at the student medical practice, and, and the, the people he sees up there. You know, there's such a sort of crossover with the sort of the mental health and you know, you know, the drug use or the drinking. That you know, they're quite complex. You know, and so, so there's a cohort out there that are already, let's say, kind of needing quite high level support. But it's also just thinking about people who who need a lower level support who, who are starting to kind of think. Or not even think, but but that kind of behaviour start to become problematic, and, and find out where they can get support, and also kind of, you know, some some of it isn't even coming to a service. It's just kind of starting to kind of understand these things, and and kind of, you know, know know where to get kind of good positive messages from, know where to kind of understand and learn more about kind of how substances might be affecting them, knowing more about kind of let's say the long term impacts as well. So so I think on kind of different levels, you, you know, substances can uh, not substances services can be quite under resourced, but it's also 
you know, again, we talked about social media. I, th I think, you know, as services, and it's, uh, I think it gets quite frustrating, is understanding how we can use sort of other um, mediums almost to kind of get messages across <laughs> and, and think of sort of more creatively, really, because I, th I think a lot for us, you know, we know people aren't going to come to us, but it's trying to think about how we can get messages effectively over to other people as well. And I think, I think really that's just sort of a starting point as well. So That's great. Yeah, thank you. I am conscious of time because we are running past the 10 o'clock mark. But quickly, one point I'd like to talk on is mental health awareness, mental health well-being. What direction do you think it needs to go in the next five years? What changes do we need to see? And we'll keep this part brief and then we'll open the questions up because I know there's a keen question asker somewhere there. <laughs> I don't come from a mental health uh, professional background, obviously, but if there's one thing I've learned through doing music professionally and in my job, it's realizing that when I do get a chance to not be thinking about my musical output being relevant to a profession, it's realizing how good it is for my head. And I can't encourage that enough to anyone, anyone like, you know, anymore. Like, I think it's very um, pressuring, once again, dragging the dead horse of social media, but like, we're constantly surrounded by people who are successful in being creative. Um, and we're constantly seeing people and seeing people on platforms being like, oh my God, they're really good. So, oh, there's no point me just DJing in my room anymore because we don't do it as mates anymore at uni. So, what's the point? And, you know, Matey Boys just, just played his first IB for gig, so, you know, there's no point. But, like, re in reality, like, it is, it is so important just to be, find your space to be creative and find your time to be creative because, like, a little, and it doesn't even have to be something musical. Like, going for a walk and, like, thinking about a story in your head or, like, cooking a cake, you know, baking a cake or something, you know, like, something simple, like, it's super important for your head and I can't encourage that enough to anyone, even on just most basic of entry levels. Um, I feel like I totally agree with that, and I think that as a creative person, that's something that I really that really like resonates with me personally. But I also feel like for like the wider youth population at large, and just the general population as well, sometimes maybe it can be like maybe that fits also a little bit into that narrative of like, oh, you can you can like take on this thing that you do yourself at home, and. That's not to take away from that point, but I just think that it's also really important to acknowledge that um, for a lot of people, doing something by yourself in your personal space is actually maybe not enough as a standalone thing, but I feel like a community is really the thing that needs to, well, an extra thing that needs to be like paid mind to yeah, in, totally. in relation to like, especially even on the subject of self-medication as well. I feel like a lot of the reason why people gravitate towards that is because they have their these kind of like prototypes of communities in like the people that they hang out with and take drugs with and also club with and listen to music with. And I feel like that's maybe something to really concentrate on is to recreate like the communities that we have online, which are so kind of prevalent and accessible to us and just really concentrate on recreating them in real time. It's just so it's it's like bullied into us socially though as well. Like it's bullying. It's just like even during school, you're told like, um, you know, do, why are you doing wasting your time doing that that creative stuff? Like you you're supposed to be getting a job. You're supposed to be doing you know you're supposed to be making money and all this stuff. So it's really drilled into you. And you're totally right. I think if if people started like vocally just meeting up and just doing stuff that is sober. Like I was just saying before we, before we went um, came here. 
found myself on a walk recently, like going for, going for a walk with some mates, and I was just about walking out the door, just like, oh, should we take a little something? And he's like, oh, maybe not, it's a bit close to Christmas. And we're going for a walk and walking around going, oh, this is all right, Sober. <laughs> this isn't that bad. We didn't need to take that any, after all, you know? And experimenting with friends and like keeping up that communication is just super beneficial, so give it a go. I think there's a couple of things. Um, so in mid-December, um, Student Minds, who are the, the kind of leading mental health, student mental health charity published a thing called the University's Mental Health Charter. And it made a, a, a just, but the male based at Leeds University, aren't they? And they're an amazing organisation. Um, and part of one of the things that, that they're really promoting is, is, a, is a community approach is an educational approach is uh, education embedded in the curriculum um the university that, that i'm at which i said earlier is a is very very niche university and you know our students will invariably either enter the live events industry it might be music it might be theater it might be you know live video production touring productions um we have, have over the last couple of years, d developed um, a really, really basic program of mental health awareness, um, and you know, a long-term plan for something for next the next academic years. That we'll start we'll start working with the students so that they can peer-to-peer -peer support one another. You know, not. Oh, not counselling. Not being a specialist. Um, you know, having difficult conversations and knowing how to have difficult conversations, and 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 that's really mirrored in what is happening in the wider music industry. So you you know you you talked about HMUK, Help Musicians UK, who published that amazing bit of of research a couple of years ago, and and subsequently published the recommendations as well. It's called "Does Music Make You Sick." And uh, and it said that seventy six percent of people who work in music will have a mental health issue. At, at some point, um, they're working alongside another charity called called Music Support, who who was set up by a production manager about four years ago, who who was kicked off uh, his production job on Coldplay's World Tour, and told to go home and get better. And, and the band paid for it; they, f they flew him home. He went into rehab, uh, and he set up a charity. And that that charity now. Uh, you know, over the last kind of two and a half, three years, they've tried to and, and they've tried to work out what what it is that that is a starting point, and their starting point they decided in in the summer was to was to train people in a in a process called mental health first aid, and that is something which has also been mirrored in their in higher education. So a lot of universities are teaching, um, you know. People who work in halls of residence, the cleaners, they've been sent on these on a two-day training program to learn how to spot behaviours, to to learn how to how to have a, a conversation, which is you know, are you okay? What's going on for you? Not to be a therapist, not to be a counsellor, not to be an expert, but to be able to have a conversation and to then to be able to signpost. And I think that that certainly in you know I call it sort of the industry that I've come from because I've worked in it all of my adult life. It's not the you know it's not that mental health first aid is not is is not the answer, but it is a start. 
and it's a, it's the start of a major major dialogue about us talking to each other and as making sure that you know that that our colleague our friend is okay and if they're not okay you're trying to work out how how you know what what will they do about that you know and it might be going to a service a service that, that, that you work with bill Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think one thing that's really important to consider is that when we think about solutions towards the future, we don't need a solution that's perfect, a solution that's going to end all, but anything that's better than the current state is a step in the right direction. A lot of plans will be sort of pushed aside saying, oh, it won't work for this reason or that reason. That's not really important when it comes to mental health. I think the point is that we're moving in a direction and we can continue to do that. I am conscious now of the time, but I'm going to open up the floor to some questions. If anyone has any questions, we've got a few questions. We'll start from the front. Sorry, Toby. Is this microphone off? Can we turn this mic Yeah. Is your hand up? Are you raising the volume on the microphone? I'm back Hello. Working. Thank you for the talk, everyone. Um, one thing you touched on quite a bit was the prevalence of like drug use in musical circles and how it may affect mental health and music. Is there anything that you think the music scenes could do better to identify these behaviours and try alleviate some of their negative effects? Keep the clubs open longer. <laughs> no, see, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I'm being serious. Like, it, it's it's. Crack on culture, as fun as it is, is definitely far more detrimental than the club being open for an extra two hours. And that goes, that from my experience, people might disagree with me, but I, I think that you're safe in the club and you're dancing and you're conscious of how much water you're drinking. And you know, you're not gonna be doing like you know, excessive amounts because you're there to party. And of course the, 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 main, the main issues that go down quite deeply for like, um, you know, for licensing issues and all these sort of things, but yeah, I mean, I, that's that's not a bad place. I feel I feel like taking the weight for once off people's responsibility. Um, I think that's yeah, definitely. I think that's important. Um, I also feel like um, being able to really appreciate how much can be gained from uh, clubbing without drugs or without drink, and not in a way that is like putting yourself in a different camp or like looking down on people, but just finding a way to to celebrate sobriety or um, or like a very minimal level of drug, drug taking in a way that kind of is like parallel to people who really enjoy getting super fucked up. And um, I don't know, like for me, there's one person who springs to mind who's called George and he runs a night in Sheffield. Um, and every single time I see him, he's just absolutely having it. Like really loves his techno. Like you've never seen anyone who loves techno as much as George. And he's just completely sober every single time. He's got his shirt off, sweating. Um, and like for me, when I see George, I just, I, I feel like everyone who runs into him and meets him just thinks like that, he's really, really doing it right. Like he really knows how to have a, a great time. And the fact that he's not taking any drugs gives me even more respect towards him. And I think that just having that process of like gradual celebration and like normalization of this other way of doing things is also really important so that if you do have the kind of mental health constitution that you can't really hack taking drugs then you can have just as good a time 
just add to that as well. I, th I think as well, it's, it's having sort of positive sort of role models in, the, in those communities. You know, people like that. I think I think you don't often hear or see those voices as much. And it's it's people that are sort of, you know, that the people will look up to. If, if you hear more of those stories and those stories get out there, then it's encouraging other people to do it. And I think sometimes, well, people can sometimes feel a bit alienated when they want to make changes. So so often, you know, we, we see it a lot when people want to make changes from stop drinking, stop taking drugs. The first thing they think they've got to do or stop doing is doing what they did before. So, so if people start to have problems, let's say, with drugs in clubs, they'll think, well, I can't go to a club again. You know, they know there's other people in clubs who, who are, you know, not taking drugs, sober. You know, that, that's going to encourage them to sort of still think, actually, I can still do that because there's still a community within that club that can do that. So I think having those sort of voices, you know, people like George, you know, the more those people can kind of be known like that, I think, I think it's going to encourage other people to do that. Yeah, good answer, good answer. Um... Toby, you've got the microphone, so if you want to take away, yeah. and then we will get one to you, don't worry. Um, we were talking about thresholds earlier uh, in terms of kind of like your your environmental mental health and then, um, you know, like deciding to get fucked up every weekend or feeling sad three days out of a week. At, at what point do you think, uh, as kind of professionals and semi-professionals, um, should someone decide to to realize that we actually might need to reach out and need help because i think it's very difficult to discern if you're on the back end of it um whether or not being upset like half the time or 30 percent of the time or 20 percent of the time or being fucked like three days out of a week whether or not that's like a significant issue and and that means you should actually go out and you know try and reach out at the very least um or start having a conversation about how it is that you're feeling basically Um, well, I mean, I, I think as soon as you sort of, it, it can be very personal to individuals. And, and I think sometimes when you're getting situations like that, it's often like a sort of a creeping effect, if you know what I mean. It, it isn't sometimes, I mean, sometimes people can sink into things overnight, but often I think people kind of get drawn into things over periods of times. And it's, it's very, very hard to kind of think you sort of, well, I, I suppose it's, it's hard to kind of understand when it becomes that sort of problem, really. And I, th I think, you know, that's why I talk a lot about kind of self-awareness. It's, it's uh, to kind of really be honest with yourself. I think the more people you've got around you that you can speak to honestly is obviously a good starting point and then sort of sharing those things. And I think, you know, I, I don't think that can be underestimated. And we're living in an age where there is a lot more awareness around mental health now, which is a really, really good thing. And I think, you know, possibly that contributes to more people sort of um, I suppose being diagnosed, I, I don't know, but I, I think it's sort of, there is more support out there because we're more aware of it, but resources are extremely limited. But I think if there's people around you, you know, if you surround yourself with some good people, I think I think that's a good starting point as well. So no matter what that crowd is, just make sure there's some people there that you can talk to really as a starting point. And we'll take your question now. Um, this question is less for the young ones and more for the old ones. <laughs> I was going to ask. They're all the same age. <laughs> we, we differentiated before, so I want to actually ask you guys. Like, do you think mental health has got progressively worse? I know that we're a generation now that are more open with our feelings, able to talk more. But then also, as you say, like going out for a walk with your friends at this age, it's not that weird if someone takes a zoo or a little bump of K, like... We're all dealing with a lot more drugs and we're a lot more open. And I'm just wondering if you think mental health has got worse or has always been the same and just not talked about? And if there's factors that are making it worse now? 
I, th I think, I don't necessarily know that it's got worse. I think we're more aware of it. And we had a, one of our psychiatrists was doing a sort of talk a, a while ago, and he talked about how the fact we norm, we normalize psychiatric terms in our kind of everyday dialogue a lot more now. So, so we'll use the words like, you know, I'm feeling depressed and things like that. I think, um, you know, people have always gone out and, you know, gone for a walk and used drugs. Do you know what I mean? I mean I'm, not, I'm not saying it's just something that sort of happened overnight. Well, it's, it's very hard to say, because, I mean, I think, um, you, you know, you know, when I was younger, people would do that, if you know, if you know what I mean. It's not, so, so, so for mental health getting worse, I think society's changed. I think we're more aware of mental health issues. We, we, we normal, like I say, kind of some psychiatric language becomes normalised. We all have, you know, like Chris said earlier, and we all have mental health, but we talk about it more, so, so we're more aware of it in that respect. So I don't necessarily know that it's got... You know, I'm just saying this, I literally don't know whether it's got better or worse, but I think it's just the fact we are a lot more aware of it. I mean, if you, if you go back kind of generations, you, you know, go back, to, you know, you could look at people coming back from the war with PTSD, you, you know, it depends what you can, can people didn't weren't aware of it then, you, you know, they used to sort of kind of like bury it a lot more, you know, we'll talk about things a lot more now, which makes us a lot more aware about things, and I think, you know, it's, it's a really, really good thing that is, you know, there's still not all the support out there, but if we're aware of it, then we can start doing more about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly agree with everything you said. I think there there is, generally speaking, a, a broader and greater conversation about not quite a normalisation, but yeah, you know, pe people. I don't think, generally speaking, well, I take my take myself. The last time I took drugs was on the thirty first of December. Uh, no, sorry, the thirtieth. <laughs> The 30th of December, 1999. That was the last time. The last time. And it was great. Uh, but you know, you know, my experience. You know, I worked in the music industry, and so it was almost kind of de rigueur then in the in the 80s and 90s. You know, there were a lot of drugs about, as there are now. You know, so you know, are there more drugs about now? Maybe. Are, are they? Well. I, I, there are different yeah. drugs about now. I, th I think the diff diff there's different ones, and I think you know. I often think this that, that before you know we've got the internet, we've got all these new NPSs, all the, all these new drugs that you can sort of order on the, the dark web, and you know I've sat there at work and Googled the dark web and just wondered what, what's going to happen to me with a look at my web browsing history. But um, <laughs> but, but uh, I, th I think you know I have this kind of theory in my head that, that there's a lot of research and a lot of knowledge about the drugs that have been around 30, 40, 50 years there's a lot of new drugs that come out and we don't know a lot about and also you, you know we, there's lots of stuff around kind of spice at the moment and it can vary so much from batch to batch to batch and any illegal drug can vary so much from batch to batch but, but things get sort of kind of new generic names like spice and spice is just such a wide ranging thing for instance that um, <laughs> You know, I'm not suggesting you're safer with the drugs you know best, but but what I'm saying is is, is that there's such a wide variety of drugs out there, and there's, there's things that we know a lot about, and there's things we don't know very much about, and and you know, in a sense, some drugs you are, well, the newer drugs people are the guinea pigs for, and you know, when ketamine first came on the scene, you know, it took several years before things like ketamine bladder really really people were aware of, so. I can't even remember where the question started. Now, I think it? I think we've answered it. As mental health, you know, it's, uh, you know, as, as are there more yeah. people with mental health, and, yeah. and you know, and I, I would say probably not. It's not hidden as much. 
you know, so you know, you 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 talked about people coming back from 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 the war, and they were typically called they were shell shocked, you know, or, or they or they started were, were starting to display, um, you know, re, you know, pretty unusual relational behaviour, and you, you know, I mean, PTSD is is a term which is very very new, you know, it's within our lifetime, and 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 so did PTSD exist before before. Um, before somebody called it PTSD, f for sure, for sure. So, you know, I, I, I would say my own experiences from, from having a, a really, really great group of mates who've been my mates for 30, 40 years, we can, we can have dialogue about how we're feeling. And, and that's something that's just very, very naturally evolved between us as a group of friends, you know, seven or eight people. And so were we doing that? 25, 30, 40 years ago, probably not. Well, no, we weren't doing that. And so, you know, has sobriety created that? No, I just think it, it's, 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 it's a change in the, in the zeitgeist of talking about, about how we're feeling. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, we are very short on time. We're gonna, are you asking a question or giving me the microphone? Well, I've got, I've got two questions. Two questions? Let's make it <laughs> one. I had to start we're very late. Um, we've got, do we still have a question at the back? Okay, we're going to take the two last questions and I'm going to trust my lovely panellists to keep their answers concise for these last two questions because we have gone 25 minutes over time. So we'll take one of your questions and if you still have another one, we can take it after, but we need to yeah, get this place set up. Can I just say thank you very much for having all the questions. It's been very insightful in your you know, individual um, fantastic perspective of your own what? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Space, space. Yeah. Thank you. So, I want to talk about in, um, the influence on reinforcing mental health. So, what provision um, is there for music to improve mental health? But also, um, is there a provision for introverted individuals, individuals, sorry, that will be passionate about music and and so forth that still be involved in seeking mental health advice within the, their own individual situation? I didn't quite get that either. Yeah, sorry, mate. Is the point, is the question, is there uh, provisions in place for people involved in music who want to seek mental health? Yes, advice? exactly. Is it on an individual level or is it on a just, you know, on the whole? Speak, speak, speak. Speaking from entirely personal perspective, um, it's quite strange. I found it quite strange this last year when being faced with more struggles of mental health, how when people see me to have a profession that, that, that is somewhat glamorous, like, you know, um, limos don't pay for themselves, but it's, you, need, you need to make sure that you, you kind of have this attitude where, I don't get limos, uh, you have this attitude that people, you know, that people are able to realize that whilst it's, you might have a cool job, like it's actually kind of hard. And it's, it's quite hard to communicate that with your friends because they'll see you, they'll, they'll be doing their nine to five and you're jetting off to somewhere to do a gig and they're not able to relate to how that being difficult. You have to find, and, and, and console in the right people because it can make it worse when you bring it up with your mates and they go, oh mate, shut up. Like, you know, how much are you getting paid to DJ? You know, it's just like, well, it's, nah, it's not that like quite straightforward, you know, this sort of thing. I think you have to be quite selective on who you talk to. So it, from my experience, no, I haven't found, I, I've had to really find my own audience to talk to people.
I don't know if you, how you feel about that, Katya. Um, I mean, I understood the question in a slightly different way, which is that, like, is the onus on the individual rather than, like, society? Um, obviously, you, you, like, took it I just community. gave an answer I wanted to give, apparently. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's open for different interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just checking. Yeah, no, yeah, cool, maybe. Uh, and I guess my response to that is that, um, uh, do any of you know the sunscreen song by Baz Luhrmann? Great song, super cheesy, right? Okay, so there's a phrase in that song which goes, your choices are half chance, so are everybody else's. And I love that. I Sorry, say that again? Your choices are half chance, so are everybody else's. Can you I, sing it? He's, he speaks All together it. now. He speaks, he speaks it. it. It's like, I, w- I would need Larry to beatbox in the background, and then I would say, your choices are half chance, so are everybody else's. That's okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but the reason that I really like that line, not only because it took the ages to actually, at first I was like, I don't get it. And then just, I don't know, I feel like with so many other things in life, you have a certain amount of control over your situation. And I think you do have like a little bit of, of responsibility to, I mean, you, you, ha- you have some choices that you can make yourself and you have some responsibilities um, that you have no matter what, but also like so much of, of your situation is, like politics and your privilege and your society and your geography and like all of these different things. So I think it's just an even balance between the two. Thank you very much. Very awesome. And can we get the microphone to our good friend at the back? He's very patiently waited to ask his question. I'll show you some good mic technique then. So normally it's me turning people up and down. I'll turn myself up, down maybe. So yeah, um, sorry, just a little bit of context. So I'm a sound engineer and production manager and I've been touring for 20 years now with bands mainly. I'm here because I was kind of doing Chief Street a little favor. And I feel a bit blessed to have actually heard you all speaking. So thank you very much because it's something that's very close to my heart. Um, and I mean, I've got a lot to say about everything you've all been saying. Like you were on about crying. I can't cry anymore. I've forgotten how to cry. Seriously, man, it's bad. Drags you through it. Anyway, I'm not gonna say that monologue. I'll do that later for anyone who wants it. But, um, so my question really is, um, I mean, I feel completely alien to society. If you see me walking around Leeds, the chances are quite high that I might have just got off a plane the day before from any part of the world. I've been on, in the last year, six continents. Um, I work all over and I work crazy hours. I do 14 hour days quite often and all that sort of thing. And the problem I have is that when you then feel down and, and you know, this talk's been largely about drugs, but Social media is a real bad one for me. I hate it. I don't have anything to do with it apart from recently I got on Instagram and that. But then drugs are like a huge part of my life as well. Um, when you turn to someone who are essentially your employers, but we're all self-employed as crew, what's, why, there's no one, it's never their responsibility to look after you. And no one seems to be kind of going to management or any... Any people that are coming in and paying me money to go and work for them and do crazy, crazy stuff that then makes me... You finish work at you, you finish work at five, six in the evening, you don't go straight to bed like that. I finish work at two in the morning. I'm not just going to go straight to bed. I'm going to go and get some racket and have fun. Right, so that's how it is, yeah? So who, what, what, who is or who should be kind of going to management companies or production companies or all the people I work for and saying... You know, look, you need to look after these guys because the fact of the matter is, you're talking about the guy that works for Coldplay. I think I actually might know, but he. Francis. Like the. Sorry? Francis. Yeah, I think I know, yeah. You know, that poor guy, you have to say, go home. 
you need to say <laughs> you need some help. If I was working up at, I was teaching at Leeds Met for a few years, about five years sort of freelancing, you know, half the guys there are off on sick leave. And they're like, oh, I had to teach a lot of students. Yeah, sorry. Um, anyway, my question is that, you know, who, what, who is doing something about that? And, and if people aren't, then, you know, why not? It's really, it stresses me. And I know a lot of guys, it really, yeah, it's close to my heart. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. That's, that's really important. So there's um, next you know, it's a year's time, Bob, you know, maybe the back end of this year that there is going to be a book published, which is the Touring Wellbeing book, and it's been put together by three writers, maybe more, actually, a woman called Tamsin Embleton, who, who runs a thing called the Music Industry uh, Collective, Music Industry Therapy Collective. With Frank C, it, it actually, you know, it, it wasn't a negative thing that happened to him. And, I, you know, and I think he, he would say that, you know, he, he was take, taken and, and sat down and, you know, said, look, you know, what what the band noticed and what your colleagues notice is that, that your substance and alcohol misuse is really, really impacting not only your job here, but it's impacting your life. And we want to really support you in that. And we want you to be safe and, and solve, you know, this whole process happened for him, which ended up in, in him setting up music support. Um, there's, a, there's a growing dialogue and a continuing dialogue. Music support are, are, are certainly are at the forefront of it. Um, the Production Services Association, the PSA, are, are really, really pushing. I was having a conversation yesterday with the with the general manager just about how you know how do we how do we educate people who work backstage you know the the, the people who are, are actually you know the real real grafters you know without that without those people without you the, the show wouldn't go on so the, the, there is a dialogue but you know like it, it takes time it really really does the conversation has been going on now for for, for a while but it has really really picked up the I th I've not read it yet, but I, I did. Somebody sent me um, a, a bit of research that the PSA and Plaza have, have, have co-funded through the, I think maybe the University of Roehampton, maybe. Um, but there is also a freelancer's guide to wellbeing which got published this week. And if you see me afterwards, I can... Ten years too late. Yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. I know, but there is a there's a there's a generation starting, you know, starting where you started 20 years ago, and 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 it's really really vital that that we educate and create cultural shift within within that industry. And that guy who said that will, will he, you know, I mean, I know it's no good r right yeah. now, but that, that guy will eventually get phased out for people who do really, really care that we, that we start to, that we start to take a humanistic relationship to the people around us, especially in, in you know, I, 
I went to do some crisis intervention work about three years ago. You you may have heard about this if you turn. There was a there was a a death on the bench sevenfold tour um, in an arena in Stuttgart, and I was asked to go out to to. We had a couple of people, the organisation that worked. We had a couple of people working on that production, and um, I went out and and I was asked. Could I also meet the wider crew? So uh, over over the course of a day and a half, I, I met fifteen guys who, some of whom were veterans of of, of, of touring, you know, twenty five years in rigging. Um, they had watched a local crew member fall out of a lighting rig onto another crew member who died within five minutes, having sustained horrific injuries. He bled out on stage from his head. Um, and the crew who were all on the stage in the loadout would, 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 as you would be when you see somebody fall out of a, uh, you know, out of a lighting rig, you know, thirty meters up onto onto somebody else, and they die. Um, you know, they were traumatized. Um, what was in What was interesting for me was that the band actually said, "If you don't want to continue the tour, we'll understand and we'll pay you." So that was that was the first thing which I thought was so cool. Um, I worked with the production manager to, to really kind of bring people in, and and I had a really kind of broad range of experiences from somebody who said to me, "I've been doing this for twenty five years, and I, I don't want to do it any longer." You know what, what? You know we're treated like pieces of meat. That that's that's the bottom line. Tours now are becoming really unsustainable. You know, we, we we board a crossing at such a rapid rate. We you know we've got two two sets of productions out on the road. We we go to bed at, at, at three. We we have to start loading at at seven thirty a.m. It's crazy. And then I had I, another guy came in and said, you know, I've seen everybody really freaked out, and I saw it. I was there. I watched the guy die. I kind of feel okay. Is that normal? And it's like, yeah, you know, everything that, that that each individual person who came into that room brought was was normal for them. It was that it was their experience. They all wanted to know were, were they gonna were they gonna have long term PTSD? And the, you know, I don't have an answer for that. But none of them had ever done any kind of therapy, and they were very very suspicious as, as to who I was. And I noticed that in the first two people, second person who came in, it's like there's the pattern. Who are you? Who do you work for? Why are you here? And it's like, so I work for you. I'm, I'm here for you. I, I come from there. I don't even need to know your name. I'm not going to write a report about you. If you want to feedback some information and you want me to do it anonymously, I'm really happy to do that. But I'm actually just here to maybe, you, you know, within, within a certain model, try and, and support you in some kind of way. And and it, it it was it was a really you know for me a really lovely piece of work and it and it actually showed a bit of, a bit of commitment. Had I not been working for the organisation that I work for, and you'll know them, Production Park, out in the, so had I not been the the counselling psychotherapist there, I wouldn't have seen anybody. You what? Sorry. Yeah. No. Well. Nah, nah. I mean, that was one of that was one of my recommendations. 
you know, when, when I came back to the right report, you know, here the outcome of, of what I experienced there. And, you know, perhaps what is going to happen throughout Europe, because nobody was taking responsibility for the, for this event. And, you know, it goes all the way up to Live Nation, you know, the people who, who, who bankroll the tour. And, you know, 28 days, 16,000 people, merchandising, you're talking about millions and millions of, of dollars. Um, and I said, you know, maybe what happens from here on in is that people mobilise together and they unionise and then, the, the, you know, it's tools down. They do that a bit in America. You know, there's, you know, Jim Digby who do... Do you know Jim Digby? I think, um, Chris, I appreciate yeah. how much answer you've put into his question and thank you for keeping it brief. Yeah, I think this is... <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, no, it, it's important that people's questions are answered. Obviously, we can come here and talk about what we want to talk about, but it's also important for us to realize what you want to hear, and it's great that we've been able to engage with you, I think. What you are talking about is great, but I know that we need to start a night here. We've also been sat here for a long time. I'm ready to piss and shake my hips. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Um, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned at the start of the night that all these panelists have taken time out of their day to sit here and talk to you. At that point, I overlooked the fact that you have all taken out time out of your day to sit here and listen, and that is really important. And I think if we are going to progress on issues with mental health and make um, positive change, that we need people who are willing to come along, listen, hopefully take some value, give us some good points and good questions. And I think that brings us to the end. So thank you all very much. Yes. <laughs>